This week on A Year With, April 30th through May 6th, we engage with George Washington's first inaugural address, Hazlitt's Persons One Would Have Wished to Have Seen, Michael Faraday's lecture on magnetism, Machiavelli's The Prince, Huxley's Science and Culture, Pedro Calderon's Life is a Dream, and more of Cellini's autobiography. Welcome with me to the 18th episode of A Year With, the podcast where we explore great ideas from our common history, good ideas and bad ones, by reading together for a whole year. And we are reading uh, the Harvard Classics, which is a world literature anthology published throughout the 20th century, and that included a uh, reading guide in the front with selections for each day of the year. And if you'd like to know more about that, please check out the introduction episode posted on the first week of 2022. Let's jump right in with George Washington. So we kick off this episode with George Washington's first inaugural address. George Washington, um, he was elected unanimously, though the through the process that was in use to elect presidents at the time. And though he kind of wished to retire from public life, he was probably the only person who generated enough unity in the country to ensure the success of the new constitution, which was untested and very well could have ended in failure. The union of states that created the United States was a very tenuous union. Being the first president, Washington very much was a precedent-setting leader. People would follow what he did thereafter. He initially wanted to fade from public life after the war and the Constitutional Convention, but duty called and he needed to make sure that the Constitution succeeded and that required his presence. He recognized with some trepidation the task set before him, and he called on God to guide himself and his country in the enormous call for wisdom and fortitude that the situation required. So he, he says here, in this conflict of emotions, all I dare aver is that it has been my faithful study to collect my duty from a just appreciation of every circumstance by which it might be affected. All I dare hope is that if in executing this task, I have been too much swayed by a grateful remembrance of former instances or by an affectionate sensibility to this transcendent proof of the confidence of my fellow citizens and have thence too little consulted my incapacity as well as disinclination for the weighty and untried cares before me, my error will be palliated by the motives which misled me and its consequences be judged by my country with some share of the partiality in which they originated. Such being the impressions under which I have in obedience to the public summons repaired to the present station, it would be particular, peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and the happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to his charge. With these words, Washington initiated an administration where observers were watching every move, and he successfully guided the country through these early eight years to a peaceful transition to a new administration when he decided after the second term not to run again. All right, for the 1st of May, have you ever played that game where you identify people from the past or the president that you, you'd like to 
have dinner with or have a beer with. Apparently, this is not a new game. William Hazlitt wrote a dialogue like this in 1826, which we call Persons One Would Wish to Have Seen. It features Hazlitt, uh, the essayist Charles Lamb, and many others. Hazlitt was an early 19th century essayist and art critic. And so much of the figures, so many of the figures identified in this text lean heavily toward the art world. Reading through this essay does require some familiarity with contemporary trends at his time and conversations from the early, from the 1820s. And this is knowledge that I don't have to a very great degree. Um, Hazlitt gives us this boisterous conversation that runs the gamut of interesting figures throughout history, writers like Chaucer, not so much Spencer, Dryden, Pope, John Bunyan, Burke, Decker, Haywood, Ben Jonson, Voltaire, Rousseau, explorers like Columbus, political figures like Cromwell and Guy Fawkes, uh, what they call metaphysicians, so philosophers like Hobbes, Barclay, and Hume, uh, artists like Leonardo, religious figures like St. Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, and Judas Iscariot, that's a good one, uh, and this uh, veritable, unassorted laundry list of those who were well-regarded at the time, but in many cases are less so regarded now. Um, it's a, it gives you a chance to think, who would you put on your list? Why would it differ from Hazlitt's list, even if it's just for cultural reasons? On May 2nd, we have a transcript of a lecture by the English scientist Michael Faraday, who lived from 1791 to 1867. So today, when the power of electricity is, is really a part of everyday life, uh, when wires run across the country to almost every inhabitable place, ending in convenient plugs for us to power our devices with, it's really hard to imagine how wondrous electricity was when it was so poorly understood and we hadn't quite fully imagined what could be done with it. Here, however, we have this very endearing plain language lecture where Faraday demonstrates magnetism and electricity with this combination of fairly normal items. He begins with a discourse on attraction through gravitation, cohesion, chemical affinity, and magnetism. He uses these everyday items like shellac, a rubber ball, a piece of glass, and flannel to demonstrate these forces. In the section on electricity, he has built this ingenious machine that generates electricity by rotating a wheel that rubs glass with silk and transmits it through brass. This demonstration culminates in the great wonder of electricity, transmitting it through his body and lighting a gas spout with a spark from his finger. In this way, Faraday like wowed his audience with this magical scientific novelty that now to us is commonplace and we don't really like to find excuses for electricity to go through our body. We generally avoid that. All right, for May 3rd, our offering is from one of the earliest examples of modern political science, and it's taken from the text which gave us the modern word Machiavellian. Niccolo Machiavelli was a diplomat and historian who wrote this text as a sort of instruction for rulers, advising them uh, which actions to take and to avoid to maintain power. His advice has little to do with ethics or morals, but mainly to do with maintaining power. You know, what the ruler does with that power is driven by his own ethical lights. Uh, this passage here is from chapters 1 through 4. In chapter 1, um, of the various kinds of princedom and of the ways in which they are acquired, it's very brief. It sets out the limits of Machiavelli's analysis here. He explains that all states are either republics or princedoms, and princedoms are hereditary or new. 
Um, in chapter two of Hereditary Princedoms, he explains that he will deal with princedoms alone in this text, not with republics. Machiavelli sees virtues in the hereditary system. The prince can kind of run on autopilot. As long as he doesn't diverge too much from the expectations and he doesn't screw up too much, he will have this inbuilt love of his people. Um, he says, quote, for since a prince by birth has fewer occasions and less need to give offense, he ought to be better loved and will naturally be popular with his subjects unless outrageous vices make him odious. End quote. Even though it deals with the Republic, um, think of the rhetoric of Washington's inaugural address earlier in this episode to consider the context of a new body politic and how to create something new and also traditional. In chapter three of Mixed Princedoms, he outlines the challenges of establishing a new rather than a hereditary princedom. There's a lot to be said here from his perspective for cultural continuity and helping the new ruler out. And I think we see that often in um, w w successful revolutions versus unsuccessful ones. Um, so he, he includes things like extirpating the traditional hereditary rulers to eliminate competition for one's affections, um, for balancing holding on to the old while revolutionizing its protector, which... Um, uh, Again, we can use the establishment of the American Republic for an example of this in action. So, and so this is an interesting uh, example here. Quote, I say then that those states which upon their acquisition are joined on to the ancient dominions of the prince who acquires them are either of the same province and tongue as the people of these dominions, or they are not. When they are, there is a great ease in retaining them, especially when they have not been accustomed to live in freedom. To hold them securely, it is enough to have rooted out the line of the reigning prince, because if in other respects the old condition of things be continued, and there be no discordance with their customs, men leave, live peaceably with one another, as we see to have been the case in Brittany, Burgundy, Gascony, and Normandy, which have so long been united to France. For although there be some slight difference in their languages, their customs are similar, and they can easily get on together. He therefore, who acquires such a state, if he mean to keep it, must see to two things. First, that the blood of the ancient line of princes be destroyed, and second, that no change be made in respect of laws or taxes, for in this way the newly acquired state speedily becomes incorporated with the hereditary. So I use that as an example with the American uh, situation that we're accustomed to, because that's the kind of revolution that we had. There was kind of a, a change in the ultimate, like, where power is derived from, but on the ground, a lot of what was there, the English common law and the laws of the states, they kind of stayed the same. And, and everyday life, um, as far as traditional customs and things, didn't change for most people, but it was kind of a, a switch of horses at the leadership level and of the justification for the kind of country you have. Next to him, there is a great advantage in expanding one's power to establishing colonies that, rather than maintaining a military occupation. In doing that, so so colonies is, is easier and cheaper than invading a country and keeping it up through, uh, you know, army garrisons and stuff like that. Um, you trade some influence over affairs since a colony is usually kind of self-governing for your more low-cost stability in the maintenance of your power. So having colonized a place, the ruler can then make common cause with weaker neighbors to leverage their power. This was the way of the successful Romans and the downfall of the unsuccessful King Louis of France, who committed five key errors um, that Machiavelli tells us here. 
Louis then made these five blunders. He destroyed weaker states. He had strengthened a prince already strong. He brought into the country a very powerful stranger. He had not come to reside, and he had not sent colonies. I think we're often uncomfortable with this kind of conversation because it doesn't reflect the kind of world that we want to live in that manifests our values, but we kind of feel like it is the kind of world we live in. And so this writing from Machiavelli manifests that tension. Should we flee from the corruptions of the world or should we participate in them to bring about some greater good? Um, I was thinking about this last year when I was reading the uh, memoirs of Henry Kissinger, who's the controversial Secretary of State who served under uh, Presidents Nixon and Ford during a very crucial and tumultuous time in American diplomacy. So this was the end of the Vietnam War, um, our country's opening to China, the ongoing Cold War, and he applied some of these realistic principles to the balance of powers in the world, but always with this semi-compromised, almost compromised by necessity value system in view. Um, And these really are questions that anyone must deal with who wants in their own country to be influential in the world. Um, Perhaps in applying this word Machiavellian as a pejorative, we're shooting the messenger. You know, Machiavelli is not telling us how we want to think of ourselves. Um, And so we react negatively and use that as an insult or a pejorative. All right. On May 4th, we have an essay called Science and Culture from the Father of Agnosticism and Darwin's Bulldog, Thomas Huxley, the 19th century English biologist. According to Dr. Eliot, Huxley's contributions to public debate and polemics probably exceed his contributions to science as a public champion of Darwinism and of agnosticism, offering that nothing shall be believed, quote, with greater assurance than the evidence warrants, end quote, without allowing evidence that exceeds the naturalistic or scientific type. So he only kind of accepted one variety of evidence. Um, Huxley was instrumental in serving as a mouthpiece for the anxious and retiring Darwin, um, for drawing sort of battle lines between science and religion, and he sought to exclude religion from compatibility with science. As a person, myself, who more or less believes in the compatibility of science and religion, or maybe a better way to say it is we we must find a way to make them compatible to enhance the usefulness and the legitimacy of both of them. I don't find Huxley's polemics very compelling, but I do appreciate his clarity of thought and his forthright writing style. I think there is room for someone like me to appreciate Huxley. Um, So the essay here was originally an 1880 address at the opening of Mason Science College, which later became part of the University of Birmingham. He honors the memory of Joseph Priestley, the English polymath who lived in the 1700s and he discovered oxygen. He uses his honor of Priestley to make his main point, though, that the recent advancement of appreciation for the benefits of science and the growth of physical science as a significant part of the university, which previously had space only for ancient and modern literature. He described the arrival of physical sciences in the battleground of ideas like this, quote, In the last century, the combatants were the champions of ancient literature on the one side and those of modern literature on the other. But some 30 years ago, the contest became complicated by the appearance of a third army ranged around the the banner of physical science. Um, This time period was a significant one for the influence of benevolent big money on institutions of higher education. So in the U.S., we had figures like John Rockefeller with the University of Chicago, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, with Vanderbilt University in Nashville, 
and uh, Leland Stanford um, providing these significant endowments for modern universities that often fit the more practical mode of the modern university. Um, it was the same in England. Huxley honors the contribution of Josiah Mason, who endowed the Mason Science College. In this great battle over the university, Huxley saw efforts like this one as a big win for the physical sciences over the liberal arts. As he explains, For I hold very strongly by two convictions. The first is that neither the discipline nor the subject matter of classical education is of such direct value to the student of physical science as to justify the expenditure of valuable time upon either. And the second is that for the purpose of attaining real culture, an exclusively scientific education is at least as effectual as an exclusively literary education. Um, he kind of loses me with these later spitting rejections of any contributions of religion, which he tells us that um, uh, that religious people learned that um, all material existence was but a base and significant, insignificant blot upon the fair face of the spiritual world and that nature was, to all intents and purposes, the playground of the devil, um, which is, of course, unfair to the best wisdom that religion has to provide. But his point is well taken that in our role as physical creatures, physical science has immense, incredible value, and it deserves a place with the liberal arts as a priority of higher learning. All right, on May 5th, from the Continental Drama volume of the collection, Dr. Elliot gives us the first act and scene from Pedro Calderon's Life is a Dream, a 1636 Spanish play. The overall plot of this play has to do with the imprisonment, liberation, and re-imprisonment of Segismundo, the Prince of Poland, who was imprisoned by his father after a prediction that Segismundo would bring bad fortune to the land. This opening scene, however, we have the discovery of the hidden prison in the mountains of Poland by Rosora, a Muscovite lady, that is, someone from Moscow, in disguise as a man. They are in a remote and treacherous area, not knowing what they'll find. And as it says, if in default of other entertainment, we should provide them with ourselves to eat. Bears, lions, wolves. Or else, default of other beasts, beastlier men, cannibals, anthrop anthropophagi, bear poles who never knew a tailor but by taste, so they might find beasts or even cannibals in the bare, remote mountains of Poland. And I heard an echo of lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, in that passage. When Rosora and her servant discover Segismundo, the pitiful imprisoned figure, soliloquizing in extensively to himself about his plight, um, the women first assume that he must be insane as he's pacing back and forth, lamenting and rattling his chains as he explains that he's done nothing wrong other than exist on this earth. Okay, so for May 6th, we're back once again to the boisterous biography of Cellini, the 16th century Italian sculptor and goldsmith. Already we've accompanied him on a jailbreak, a life lived in the company of artists like Michelangelo and Torrigiano, and observed his heroics in the 1527 sack of Rome. Today we see a more hot-headed Cellini, this time fighting against a duke who let's admit, was paying Cellini's bills on a matter of taste. Cellini was producing a Perseus sculpture, and he was quite enamored with his own work, at least in the max wax model. He said the, the wax, waxen model produced so fine an effect that when the duke saw it and was struck with its beauty. But the duke, his patron, was not confident that it would work out if cast in bronze. 
Benvenuto, this figure cannot succeed in bronze. The laws of art do not admit of it. The words of his excellency stung me so sharply that I answered, My lord, I know how very little confidence you have in me, and I believe the reason of this is that your most illustrious excellency lends too ready an ear to my calumniators, or else indeed that you do not understand my art. Um, Cellini then just buries the Duke in these arguments for the absolute correctness of his position that, yes, indeed, this figure could be produced in bronze. We see Cellini here at his most thin-skinned and cheeky. He's confident in his superior abilities and knowledge in the face of another who was socially and economically superior to him in their society. All right, what's in there for the week? Thank you so much. Um, again, I've been thinking about what I will read during the year of 2023 to keep this effort going. If you have any ideas, please let me know. You can email me at zach.garrett, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T, and I will see you next week.